welcome to the podcast with Suzanne and Amy, brought to you by Homeschool Life Magazine. I'm Suzanne. And I'm Amy. And this is episode three for July 18th, 2016. And I am back. Yay. <laughs> I'm back you from have a vacation. Great vacation. I did. I did. We lost power there where we were staying at the end, which was exciting and would have been better if we had not also lost water at the same time. But, um, but yeah, I'm back and I have a voice again. Yay. A lovely voice. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So it's time to, it's time to think about homeschooling again. Yes. Now that vacation is over. Now that vacation is over. And, um, the homeschooling topic we had thought about for this go round was, uh, but what about calculus and other uh, stupid curriculum questions that homeschoolers get asked right? over the years? Because I, I think homeschoolers may get, I mean, we, I don't know, I haven't taken a poll. We get made, may get more than our fair share of stupid questions. Um, although that's a little mean. Sometimes it's not stupid. Sometimes it's, it's ignorant. Well, it's interesting because it is sometimes as though by choosing to homeschool, we put ourselves, uh, people sometimes think that homeschoolers are available for questioning that, um, you know, that our choices are somehow the common world's business and should be justified and explained to people whose business it's really not. This is true. This is true. And I actually think that there at some time we'll do a podcast. We'll do that as our topic about just kind of what to expect if you're a homeschooler and you're starting out homeschooling and you kind of come out of the closet, you know, as you kind and it kind of becomes public and, and um, because it's something that you don't, you can't really keep to yourself. People on the, and on the outside world, they want to be friendly to your kids. They want to talk to them and ask them questions. And if you don't tell your kids to lie, which I have considered, um, you know, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna come up. Um, so I think there's, there's an interesting topic there. And of course the big question, the big question that homeschoolers get, um, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see. I don't know if it's quite as much as it was like 15 years ago, but, um, the S question. Oh yes. The dreaded S question. The S, the S for socialization question. So we're going to save that for its, its very own podcast. Right. That's um, a, that's a topic all in and of itself. That's the top. And I can get, you know, I can get very snarky with that. But um, today we're going to focus on the question. I probably get second after the S question, which is, uh, but what about calculus? <laughs> and I, I don't know why it's calculus. It's always calculus. I don't know why it's not. But what about AP chemistry? I don't know why it's not. But um, and and that's what people ask when they hear I'm homeschooling and they just and they're trying to wrap their brain about it around it. And, you know, but how how are you going to homeschool calculus? Um, and it's so fascinating to me because I got this question right, you know, talking about coming out of the closet right at the very beginning. You know, I had like a five year old and um, people are asking, but what about calculus? Well, in all fairness, he is a very, he was a very smart five year old. Right, right. Well, so that's my, so I was thinking about this and I was thinking about how I respond to this question. I actually have like three different, three different responses that I, that I use based on the circumstances and, and my snarky response, um, which is usually only inside my head or to my homeschooling friends when next I see them, but is like, you know, he's five, 
Thank you. Thank you for appreciating how obviously advanced he is. But I think, you know, I think we're okay for the next couple of years. Um, but the 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 question, the answer I most use, like to kind of like family and friends and, you know, polite and interested strangers, you can tell when somebody comes up and they kind of, they kind of genuinely want to know and they're genuinely interested, but they, they don't really know, you know, anything about it. Um, and my response in, in those kind of situations was that, you know what, well, I, I used to be a software engineer and actually I went to Georgia Tech and I, I've taken quite a bit of calculus over the years. So, you know, I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable with teaching calculus when we get, get around to that, um, which is, I will admit, a totally like braggy answer, like, ha ha. But I think there are circumstances, especially as a homeschooling parent out there where you kind of just want to shut down conversation. Right. <laughs> you kind of just want to be, nope, I got it. Thank you very much for your concern. But I got it. And um, we can move on now. <laughs> um, and then my, my last answer. And so that's, that's one category. And then I also have the category of people who come up who you can tell they're thinking about homeschooling, right? Maybe they have a personal interest in it. And so they're either beginning or they're potential. And this is a, it's a genuine concern. Right. They're scared that they right. can't teach calculus. Exactly. And, and I, and I, you know, and math is particular math phobia, um, I think is a, a, a real thing in our culture and especially with women and um, a lot of homeschoolers are moms. And, you know, so I think may, maybe that's why it always ends up being calculus. Um, so this is probably my real, like my real answer, like my actual genuine answer, which, and it's, it's, you know, you don't have to worry about it till you're there. Are you, are you teaching a, a 12th grader? Do you have somebody who's about to graduate from high school? You know, then you don't have to worry about um, calculus. And if you get there, like if you're getting ready to homeschool high school, like some people I know, <laughs> and you're maybe thinking about coming up in a few years, you have, you really have so many options. You've got there's co-op classes, there's tutoring. Um, people use Khan Academy a lot for higher level math. A dual enrollment with your local community college is a, is a fantastic option because, you know, then you have actual real, you know, transcript kind of information when you go looking at, at college applications. But it's not something that you have to do on your own. You are not all out there. When you sign up to homeschool, you are not signing up to do every single thing on your own, out of your own head. Right. Um, and that is good because as it turns out, I have no interest in homeschooling calculus. <laughs> when my own kids, when I, when I started seeing that come up in the, you know, seeing that ahead coming up, um, I realized that, yeah, I, I did pretty well in calculus t 25 years ago and I don't really want to go back and learn it again. <laughs> I feel like I could, but I could also be reading a book or I could be watching something terrible on television. So um, I was really, really happy when it worked out that my kids were going to go to the public school for high school and that calculus was not going to be on my plate. Right. Um, so I'll teach algebra all day long, but I don't, don't want to do calculus. How about you? What, well, what, have you gotten I don't that question? I don't want to teach algebra either. I don't want to teach algebra <laughs> or geometry or trigonometry or calculus. <laughs> so, so I'm not going to <laughs> that is a good plan <laughs> um, Jason is taking over our daughter's math officially this year I am happy to give it to him he will do a great job um, I'm, I'm lucky that Jason is good at math so 
Um, but, you know, when she gets up to trig and calculus, I, if Jason doesn't want to keep doing it, we will look for a local class or an online class. Um, because really, but I'm not even worrying about it right now because right. I don't even know if my daughter is going to want to take calculus. Right. You do not actually have to take calculus right. in high school. Although I, I will say that I have certain biases in that direction. And I, when we started homeschooling, one thing I said was, you know, as God is my witness, my children will take calculus in high school. Um, I've gotten away from that now, which is, right. but you know, I, I, in either way, either way, you have a lot of options. I think it would be great if she decided that she wanted to take calculus. I feel like I, I found calculus challenging, but rewarding. And mm -hmm. it could be great for her to work really hard at math that doesn't come naturally and to kind of see that she can accomplish that. I think that's a great thing to learn. But if calculus isn't where she wants to learn that, I'm going to be okay with that. And I'm not going to spend her freshman year of high school stressing about something that may or may not happen her senior year. Right, right. You know, and as they get older, they take more and more they should take more and more responsibility for their own education, whether it's via homeschool or via, you know, more traditional school or whatever. I mean, they, they should, they should, I think they should have more control over kind of what direction they're going. We can help them say, look, if you want to do X, then this is the kind of academic background you're going to need to have, which may or may not include calculus. Right. Exactly. But I, I think it's crazy that we have this expectation that just because, it's like what you said, that just because someone decides to homeschool that, A, they should be able to teach every single subject, right. which certainly is not the case for people teaching in most schools. I mean, no right. one expects the literature teacher to jump in and teach a year of AP chemistry. That's crazy. Right. Um, well, I was going to say, and it's, it, and, and it's really not about calculus, right? I mean, calculus is the, if for some reason, that seems to be the one that people always ask about. I can't teach a foreign language. I, I am I am not bilingual in anything. You know, I had a I had a couple years of high school Spanish. I had a couple years of college Japanese, and I can't. I'm not qualified to teach anything. Um, the kind of science, you know, high school level science, where you're trying to get people ready for college. That's not something that maybe I have the equipment to do. I mean, maybe that's a scary thing to think about. But there's actually a, a wide range of things that I am not really capable of teaching at the level that my kids need once they reach like high school. Right. Right. Well, calculus is the obvious example because most people are a little bit scared of calculus. That's true. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people, um, including me kind of feel like, you know, elementary school, we can handle that. Elementary school right. is easy. It's fun right. to teach. Um, I mean, I think for most people, elementary school is something that you, you really can teach it all well with, with the right. help and support of the right curriculum and materials. If you want to teach everything in elementary school, you probably can. Right. And yeah. And I was kind of all set to do that. Right. When when I started to think, I mean, I think I had in my head and, and this is maybe the other big curriculum question that comes up a lot when I'm when I'm out in public talking about these things is 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 there like third grade in a box somewhere, right? right? Either either the government or the the state government. You know, I get a lot of questions about, oh, well, well, there's Georgia State, you know, sets the curriculum, right? And and in Georgia, they they do not set the 
curriculum. They, the, the law, you know, specifically says that you must teach math, English, English language, art, science, social studies, reading, that kind of thing. But they don't, they don't tell you how. Um, and it's all on the honor system anyway. There's no, there's no body, you know, checking, checking up on you. Right. Um, so once you realize kind of, well, there's no, you know, the state isn't telling me how, and I kind of went online and I was looking for, okay, where can I buy first grade in a box? Um, and I was kind of surprised that, that you couldn't, or if you could, it wasn't, it didn't look the way I thought it should look. Um, so, which is why it was actually really exciting to me. That's what, this is one of my favorite things about homeschooling is not buying first grade in a box or whatever is about being able to make the choices about the individual curriculum and, Ooh, this looks really exciting. And, and maybe this is where I come out as a curriculum junkie. And I mention all the different kind of grammar <laughs> texts I have in my house and, and Ooh, that looks new and exciting. But, um, but yeah, to me that, that gives you so much freedom. Um, but it's, it's one of those, it's that freedom that can be a little bit scary, right? When I'm talking about potential homeschoolers, I mean, it's, it's, a lot easier to imagine going and clicking one button and ordering third grade in a box. And it is like, Oh wait, you mean I'm going to have to figure out reading and math and all that, even though right. that's where well, the power when you, is. When you can pick from everything in the world, exactly. how you pick which one, which right. individual one to try. Right. So did you have that experience? Were you, were you ready to go off and buy third grade in a box? Well, so when we started homeschooling, we pulled my daughter out of school in second grade and I went to the library and I checked out the, um, what your second grader needs to know. There's this whole series of yes. books by E.D. Yes. Hirsch and there's one mm -hmm. for every grade level. Um, so I read the second grade book cover to cover, you know, to prepare myself. And I thought, oh crap, there is no way that I can do this. I'm a homeschooler <laughs> and I haven't even started. <laughs> So, but what I did is I went back and I, I got what your kindergartner needs to know, what your first grader needs to know. And I read the whole series from kindergarten through eighth grade. And what I found was actually really comforting. Reading the one book stressed me out a lot, but uh -huh. reading the whole series from first kindergarten to eighth grade was, was really comforting because I saw that so much information and so many skills get repeated year after year after year. So just because something was on the second grade list did not mean that we had to completely and totally master it in second grade. Right. It, it was like it gave me permission to take an incremental approach. Right. Right. And you just as you go along. I mean, that's the that's the power. And would you recommend that series for homeschoolers today, do you think? I think that if you are genuinely in a where you don't know what to do, where you're sitting there confronted with teaching second grade, as I was, it can be really helpful because it gives you an idea of where to start. Um, I would say read the books on either side of it, too, because I think seeing the repetition really is comforting. Mm -hmm. But I think that as you get more confident as a homeschooler, as you do it, you kind of you kind of learn what works for your kids and you are able to follow their lead. So you know that maybe a history curriculum that's based on read alouds is not going to work for this particular kind of kid. It might be a great curriculum. It might have great information, but you need something different for your particular kid. Mm -hmm. um, you might know that you're, I mean, my son loves math. He's crazy about math. He wants to do math all the time. And he just like rocks through his little math books right now. He, right. 
And so I don't make a big deal when we start a new math <clears throat> book. I'm not like, oh, look at you. You're so smart because <laughs> precocious kids don't grow up to be gifted adults always. It's just like, why set somebody up for that? Right. Um, for feeling like they were so smart as a kid and then all of a sudden they're not. I, but I find that really stressful. That's the thing that I stress out about. But, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I feel like your kids show you what they're ready for. And most of the time, it really does mesh up with what they should be learning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you made a really important point just then, which is you got to start somewhere, right? I mean, and I think, I think maybe people who are starting homeschooling or even experienced homeschoolers who are heading into a new phase get that kind of panic moment where, like you said, everything, we got to get everything. we got to have it going on Monday. Um, but, but you don't, you know, you, like you said, you just have to start somewhere and maybe the somewhere is reading the, the Hirsch book and getting an idea. Um, and, or maybe the somewhere is with, with one particular, you know, let's try this one math curriculum and let's just try this one thing and then build on from that. And this is, this is, I think what I have learned is that it doesn't really matter where you start, right? I mean, you can pick any starting point and use that as your way into homeschooling, um, either from the beginning or, or at a particular stage and then build on that as you go, paying attention to what your kids, where your kids are and how they learn, which is, you know, what you were talking about and you will get there. You will get where you need to go. Um, so you don't have to put a lot of pressure on yourself about, about where you're, you know, just pick somewhere, pick somewhere to start. Right. Um, and, and we do, Suzanne, we follow your great idea, which I totally stole from you, uh, <laughs> to do the annual testing instead of mm. our, Georgia only requires it every three years. Mm -hmm. But I find the test kind of reassuring when it's not the focus of everything that you do, but just kind of something that you use every year as a piece of your homeschool and like a little tiny part of your assessment. I mean, right. because it really does show you is your kid doing what most other kids his age are doing? And it's right. nice to be able to say, oh, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, you can't really count the science and social studies. Right. Um, because they usually cover specific information, which may or may not be what you covered in your particular homeschool that year. Yeah. Um, I know we're, um, we're classical-ish, so we're like doing ancient history and other people are doing different countries. And so right. those questions, <laughs> I mean, my kids would bomb that part of the test. Yeah. But yeah. language arts, math, you can kind of see, oh, well, we're on track or, oh, maybe we need to concentrate a little more on this. Right. And then just what's in your own situation, looking ahead, like, OK, well, so we're not, you know, we're we're maybe not where they are um, in this particular area. But I'm still, you know, I'm planning to be homeschooling for the next three years. So I'm not really concerned about that now. Right. Or you can look and say, oh, well, you know, like for me next year is my my younger daughter's eighth grade year. And um, she'll be heading into ninth grade at the public high school. So it becomes really important about how well does she match up with her with her peers, even though we are still not yet worried about calculus. So, well, that's the thing is, <laughs> I, I, I think what you said is so true. Worry about calculus when you get to the place where calculus is what you need to do next. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true for all pieces of homeschooling, because it's such a big it's such a big thing that you, you can make yourself absolutely, absolutely insane. 
Um, which is why there's all these great topics for us to talk about. I mean, we definitely need to have a podcast on testing, on standardized testing, right. and that kind of thing. And I think if people have specific curriculum, I mean, we have a whole bunch of curriculum topics. We could just do a homeschool curriculum podcast. That would have to be like, uh, yeah, I was going to say that would be like a two year. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, people should definitely let us know if they have, you know, specific ideas for a topic or specific concerns, because we may not know anything, but we can still talk about it. Yes. And you can always email us at podcast at homeschoollifemag.com if you have a specific question that you'd like us to address. Suzanne knows everything. I know like four things. <laughs> as we cover it. I'll just take that. I'm just going to lie back and take that yeah. and enjoy the moment. Accept the compliment, as my son says. <laughs> well, so is there anything else we wanted to say about, you know, curriculum questions that homeschoolers get? Um, we would certainly be interested in curriculum questions that listeners get that we didn't yeah. address here. So definitely, we're we're always, we love to hear from you. That's the best part of our week. So please reach out. Let us know what you'd like us to talk more about curriculum-wise. Um, this episode of the podcast with Suzanne and Amy is brought to you by the summer issue of Homeschool Life magazine, currently my favorite issue of the magazine. <laughs> If you haven't gotten your copy, you should get it now. Uh, The Summer Reading Guide is one of our annual highlights, but there's lots of other good stuff in there, too. Homeschool Life is the smart magazine for secular homeschoolers. Cool. Um, So you're just back from vacation, but you've got other stuff going on in your life. Suzanne's uh, summer hobby is one of the most interesting hobbies in the world. I'm just going (laughs) to let her take it away. Well, okay, so maybe interesting to you and me, and and that's about it. But I was telling Amy about a game I play with myself um, called that I call Library Chicken. Um, and it's it's a game of it's a solitaire. It's a game of solitaire. I'm the only one that plays, and I'm the only one that keeps the keeps score. And um, I don't know if anybody else in the world thinks that this is this is a a not crazy thing to be doing. But but Amy suggested that I tell you guys the rules for um, library chicken. So in case anybody else wants to play or just to, to mock me, that's also that's also okay. So you know, like when you're playing a game of solitaire, you start with a deck of cards, you start, you know, four suits, 52 cards. All right. So, so you have to know this library chicken is about checking books out from your library. You probably didn't guess that from the name. <laughs> And so you have to know the rules. Now, in my in my county, with my library system, on my card, I can have 25 books out at a time. I check out for a four-week period, and then I can get two renewals of that four-week period, unless it is a book that somebody else has on hold, in which case I can't renew it, or if it's a two-week new book, in which case I can only check it out for two weeks and there's no renewals. Plus, I may have secret access, don't tell anyone, to my husband's library card. Um, so don't don't snitch. And um, yeah, so that's the checkout. That's the checkout uh, queue. Which and puts then you at 50 books. 50 books, right. I have a friend in, in another county, in a neighboring county. She can check out 75 books on her card. Yeah, I hate that county. Yeah. Um, Anyway, and then and then the other part of Library Chicken, the other half is you can have up to online, you can request up to 15 holes. Um, And then they bring those in to your to your uh, to your local library. And then they're waiting there on a shelf with your name on them. And it's just like getting a present. And it makes me so happy. But you don't know 
when they're going to come in. All right. right. And they count. If you, when you check them out, they count toward your total. Exactly. So, and you can, you have to get them within a certain time window, right? That's right. You have a week. They'll stay at the library for a week and then they'll get sent back into the library pool. Although it depends on when the librarians check on it. So you may have a couple of days there on the end if you want to play, <laughs> you want right. to gamble. <laughs> so so what happens with library chicken? And I always say I'm not going to do this. This is not something I'm hugely proud of. But um, library books are free. So I have been known when maybe I'm having a slightly difficult day to hop down to the library that is exactly one mile from my house and check out, I don't know, like 50 books, like max out both my cards um, if or my card and my husband's card. And on other occasions, I have been known, like maybe the library isn't open. So maybe I'll bring up the library, you know, website and I'll max out my hold queue. So this is a situation I'm in. I've got, you know, I've maxed out my checkouts. I have all my checkouts in a stack and I have 15 books coming. So I have to have space. I have to have returned enough books to check out the holds when they come in. So then it's just a matter of this is, so this is the meat of solitaire, right? This is the meat of library chicken is arranging my book stack, taking into account new books, two week books, books that may or may, I mean, when I go to renew, they may or may not have a hold on them and I may or may not be able to renew them. Um, and then trying to maybe read the short books first. Cause, and then you look at your hold list and you see if you're number one on the holds list and whether you guess when the books are going to come in and maybe one day, boom, all, you know, six books come in on your hold list and then you have to hurry Anyway, um, this is how I spend my spare time is playing library chicken and and like spending a lot of time deciding what book I'm going to I'm going to read read next. So for every book that I actually read, like I read it and I return it. Um, that's like a point. I don't really keep score, but that's like a point for me. That's a win. If I read it, but I have to keep it a couple extra days, like past the due date. Um, or else I couldn't renew it when I thought I could renew it because it had a hold on it. Okay. That's like, I still get a point, but it's like using a cheat code. Right. It's like I cheated a little bit. Um, the super Luigi guide. Exactly. That, so, so every book that I have to return unread, um, I lose a point. Or if I lose a book off the hold shelf because I wasn't able to check it out in time. Uh, then that's, then that's losing a point. And I will tell you that I always end up losing all of this. <laughs> I mean, I, you don't, you don't win library chicken cause it just keeps going forever. So it's just a question of how long can I keep the street going before I, I just have a day where I give up and I take 20 books back to the library right? and I start fresh. Um, so there are books that I have checked out three, four times without, there are probably books that have like been in my house like for almost a year between checkouts and renewals. And then they go back and then I check them out again because I just, I haven't ever, they haven't ever hit that point on the, on the queue. So I did, I had, I maxed out my library chicken um, before I went on vacation because this is a big, a big time reading vacation for me where I sit around and read a lot and I only read four books. So now I am in trouble. Well, you had no water for part of it. So I feel like maybe the library should take that into account. I think they should give me an extension. I'm going to go in and explain the rules and <laughs> see what they can do for me. And first, they're going to take away my library card. <laughs> because, 
you're really not supposed to do. They're going to limit you to 10 books. They're going to limit me to 10 books. And um, I used to also use my kids' cards so I could have, like, lots and lots. So you're reading for them. I am. I am. But really, really, you're not supposed to use anybody else's cards. So don't tell on me or they'll take away my library privileges. And that would be. And that would be very sad. So, yes, yeah, so this is what I do. I'm looking at now. I have, let's see, my card is not maxed out. My card's at 22 at the moment, but I have maxed out my holds list. Uh-huh. But I have some books ready to go back. So, I mean, so this is the, but also then I have, but some of them are on Philip's card. So then I have to pay attention to like the holds are coming in on my card. Anyway. Um, it's deliciously I, complicated. I really kind of, I, I mean, I actually kind of realized the other, I mean, I did it for a long time, like unconsciously. Like I wasn't really thinking about it. And then I was like realizing kind of what I did and how much energy I spent into managing this. And now I've just embraced it. I've just embraced the game of library, of library chicken. Although it, it probably is a little weird given that I do have a house full of books that I've bought but haven't read, plus a uh, full Kindle. I, so. But I think that that does not take into account that I must read this now syndrome, which is a real thing. True, but I find that there's something about, like, like sometimes I order a book off Amazon, like maybe used because I know I can't get it through the library, and it's because I want to read it right then. But there's something the urge. I always read the library books, right? Because I'm playing library chicken, so I have to win the game. Right. So there's an urgent. So I have actually considered there are books that I have like on my Kindle that I haven't read that I have that have my library has, and I'm like maybe I should just check the copy out from the library. And read that copy, and then I would finally read it instead of just letting it sit on my Kindle because I could read it anytime. Well, Kindle books. I, I mean, I I was skeptical of the Kindle, the ebook, you know, uh, but but I I love how many books you can fit onto one device. That's amazing. But I do think it takes away the urgency for reading. I mean, because when you go out and buy or get from the library a big stack of books, they have to go somewhere. They're like sitting on your night table looking at you accusingly. Oh, no, I have a specific library stack spot in my house. And I'm looking at it right now. And it's like in three different columns. And that's bad. That means means I'm losing. And actually, that's what usually when I give up on library chicken, right, is when it starts to feel like, like, oh my gosh, I haven't done my homework, right? Like I'm failing. Right. It starts to get to be po- too painful. It's no longer fun. And that's when I have to take the whole stack back. Well, I think most things we should stop when they're not fun. <laughs> my, I would just like to point out that my entire family thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. This book is due back tomorrow at the library and I have to finish it. <laughs> I'll I have been doing nothing as exciting as Library Chicken. I mean, is there anything as exciting as Library Chicken? Maybe that's the that's the. Maybe big we, could, we could start a league. We could start a Library Chicken league, and people could post their numbers and. And we could have we could have fantasy league. Like I might be my fantasy book Library Chicken person. <laughs> uh, it's definitely a new trend. I can see it happening. <laughs> I I think it's awesome. I I want to play Library Chicken, but I would never win and I think I would just get really frustrated (laughs) I have trouble not winning it's like a thing that's hard yeah yeah no I understand well I haven't I haven't been playing library chicken I've been reading a little but mostly um mostly the last few weeks since the summer issue came out I've just been really domestic and and by domestic I should clarify I've been making jam and knitting kitchen towels instead of doing laundry or cleaning the bathroom 
Oh, well, yeah. I think that's the, the appropriate definition. When I think of being domestic, I don't think of like keeping a clean house. I think of like, of like homemaking. And I don't mean that snarkily, just, you know, of creating beautiful things to have in your home to provide more comfort to your right. family. Uh, granted, they, they might be more comfortable if, if we actually ever did laundry or... Right. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's the fun part of right. housework. It's not the essential, maybe, part of housework. <laughs> I, I say that's a word. I, I, I would argue that I've proved, you know, in my own house, proof of concept that it's not essential. <laughs> I'm always so thankful that we do this podcast as a as a podcast and not as a video because I really don't know where. I, I mean, I'm looking at the stack of laundry on the couch that's just kind of staring at me. Yeah. Like, hi, maybe you could fold me one day. Yeah, well, I've got all my vacation laundry I haven't quite got to yet. Because there were books to read, Amy. <laughs> I Clearly, you had your priorities straight. <laughs> but what kind of jam? Are you going to give me some jam? Have you made enough jam for everyone? That's what I want to I will, know. I will give you jam. I'm, I'm making a second batch now for my sister-in-law's baby shower, um, oh. um, which is going to be blueberry because the said baby in question I think I teased this earlier but it's a boy yay yay oh that's so awesome so but I usually make um freezer jam which is uh slacker jam I, okay. I call it slacker jam it's you know how like um when people make jam women make jam it's always like over the boiling pots of water and there's all yes. this like you know dr- so freezer jam is like you don't even have to turn the heat on <laughs> like very very lazy jam and I don't even like do anything special with it I um I just follow like the fruit pectin that you buy uh-huh. directions inside it and I just oh. use this direction oh. oh well that sounds that sounds awesome but I mean I, I I think it's great because even if it turns out a little runnier or maybe a little chunkier than you wanted it to I mean it, it tastes good and you're like it, you know you can say it was made with love and people it, eat it anyway it's still homemade okay my dog is freaking out somebody's probably walking by the house so okay. if anybody's wondering that's what's happening and walking a suspicious walking by the house. Yes. Well, that is awesome. See, I like to know people who can do things like make jam and knit. I'm making a, a list of them and their their distance from my house so that when the apocalypse comes, I can walk to somebody's house who knows how to do something <laughs> and stay with them instead of my house where I'm like, oh, well, the Kroger's shut down. I guess I'm now going to starve. Yeah. Well, I don't I mean, I, I like things like making jam and I yeah. like knitting but if I didn't I I don't so there's nothing intrinsically or magically better or healthier or more special about stuff that you make than stuff that you buy right? wait but you don't really you don't think this is like the 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 most high thing that a, that a woman can do in in her life is to is to make these domestic comforts for their families and their loved ones. I feel like there are parts about this kind of kind of homemaking life that I really like and I enjoy doing those things. But I think I think maybe in a certain way I have a problem with the whole idea that we have of domesticity. And I feel like homeschool moms maybe especially are likely to right. fall prey to it because I think right. so I mean I know that I personally at the end of the day I feel like I need to have something to show that it's that it's okay that, you know, we stopped being software engineers or professors or graphic designers or whatever to be to be moms, you know? I, right. I feel like sometimes 
I have to prove that the choices I've made were good and that I have to kind of prove all the time that I'm doing this great, amazing, wonderful, authentic stuff. Right. When really I'm doing stuff that I like because I like it and I'm doing it because I think it's fun. And the years when it doesn't seem like it would be fun to make jam or when I don't want to knit a dish towel, I, I, I don't do it. <laughs> right. Well, and I think you're right. I think it is easy. I mean, I know that I have some guilt around. Well, I think it's also a stay-at-home mom thing. What have you been doing all day? You know, especially if you've had a, a career or maybe not, you know, you know, whatever, whatever your, your background is. Um, and I think homeschool moms in particular, you're right, because I think um, online there is not, there is, there can be, you can easily find, let me put it that way. You can easily find homeschoolers out there who have created you know, this, they talk about what, how they cook and how they bake and how they, they make stuff. And, and it feels like they've created this, 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 this Martha Stewart, you know, kind of very homey kind of, kind of world. Um, and, and I, I tend to avoid <laughs> those, those kind of homeschoolers, which is not entirely fair because, you know, people are presenting what they enjoy. So if I present what I enjoy and what I feel I'm good at, then, you know, that may look a certain way online, but you're not getting the whole picture, right? You're not getting the the stacks of laundry and you're not getting the dirty dishes in the sink or whatever, whatever it is that you don't do well. Right. Well, that's, I mean, I try to look at the people that, that I'm friends with who are homeschoolers and they are all really good at some things. I mean, I, I have my friend Tama's house has never been messy. I mean, I have wow. never been over there that it hasn't been perfectly clean. It's insane. It's like a sickness. She's amazing <laughs> at that. And I mean, you, you read all the books. It's crazy. I have like real reader inferiority with you in a way. That... <laughs> but I mean, I, there are things that Tama doesn't do that I do. And there are things right. that you don't do that I do. And I'm sure right. that someone coming into my life might feel like, oh, wow, she does so much when really it's just this particular thing that I'm doing really well. Well, and I have this, I have this theory about parenting um, and, and it definitely applies to homeschooling is that it's okay to focus on what you do well and acknowledge the things that maybe aren't in your wheelhouse. Um, you don't have to come into parenting or homeschooling and be good at everything, which, Oh, there's my dog again, which, um, <laughs> ties into kind of our curriculum approach, but like, okay, so I know about myself that I am not, I'm not going to be sports mom, right? That's not in my genes. That's not who I am. I'm not going to be one of those, you know, I'm not going to be able to have one of those families where the kids are each doing, you know, a sport or two and we're all out there every weekend and we're healthy and fit and, and in shape. And I, I, I see the value of that, but I'm not athletic mom, right? I am not crafts mom. I'm not, you know, I'm not making jam. I'm not doing art. I'm just, that's not, that's not who I am, even though I appreciate the value in that. And I could feel bad about not doing it. I am really good at library cards, right? I mean, my kids all had their library cards by the time they were five, we went to the library once a week we did. I mean, so like, that's, that's what I'm good at. That's what I love. Right. right. I mean, I'm, I'm library mom. We got the library card thing down, right? We got the reading every night, down. And that's, that's who I am. And I think when I came to the realization that it was okay to focus on that and celebrate that and realize that not everybody, not everybody is that, 
right? Not that they need to be or have to be, but that this is um, this is something that I think is important and, and I am able to do that for my family. And I can focus on that instead of on all the stuff I know I don't do well. Yeah, I think I think that you, you hit it on the head. It's we we want to be free to do the things that we like, the things that we're good at, and to not mm-hmm. have to feel guilty about the millions of things that we could be doing that we aren't. But other right. people are doing beautifully and awesomely and brilliantly. I know. I wish I was like music mom. You know, I wish that I that I played three different I have friends who play, you know, multiple instruments and their kids growing up read, grow up reading music and they, you know, and just you know, there, there are so many lovely things out there that, that are important and that I wish I could give my kids, but I just had to say, you know what, I'm not going to be able to give my kids that personally. They can still find it out there in the world. And I will do everything I can to put them in touch with the right people. You know, I will totally send, you know, my daughter over to your house. You can teach her how to knit, but, um, but I don't have to do that. And that's okay. And it's okay to celebrate what you are good at. Yeah. More celebrating what we are good at. Yeah. Um, so Suzanne, speaking yeah. of things that we are good at, <laughs> um, and send that... people other places to do things. <laughs> hey, is it time to talk about fall classes? I'm it really is. Excited. We've been working on class uh, descriptions for the fall classes that will be offered at Homeschool Life through the Homeschool Life magazine website. Yay! Um, and that's going to start after Labor Day, because that's when school should start. Um, and Amy had asked me to plug one of my fall classes. So, you know, I thought about talking about my musical American history class that's going to be the American Revolution um, as depicted in the musicals 1776 in Hamilton. And, and then I thought about talking about my critical thinking and the media class, which is also known as, you know, talking back to your television. But then I thought that I would really like to talk about my apocalyptic lit class, which I'm so excited about. I don't know, I don't know how or why, but a couple years ago, I really got into reading books about the end of the world. (laughs) And there are a lot of them out there, Um, not to mention movies and television shows and video games and all that. And I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating um, that we as a culture are so interested in this kind of end of the world scenario. Um, I think it's really interesting the different approaches that people can have. Is it is it inherently pessimistic? Inherently, as soon as things go bad, we're all going to turn on each other. Or is it inherently optimistic that, yeah, bad things happen, but people will still try to maintain their humanity? Um, it is, what is the definition of humanity? You know, it's it's it really is a lot of really fun, interesting stuff. So um, I'm going to be teaching a 12-session, one-semester course beginning in September. Uh, we're going to read four novels, uh, four of my very favorite apocalyptic lit novels. I think that cover a wide range. There's different, there's different varieties of apocalypse. There's different re- responses to the apocalypse. And, and then at the end of your end of the class, uh, students who want to, um, the final project, they can choose to build their own apocalypse. Um, I love that so much. I'm sorry to interrupt. That's so brilliant. Oh, I'm so excited about it. And, you know, you know, pick, 
pick your disaster, pick your response. How do people respond? What happens at the end? And I'm really excited about it because, you know, it could be a, a written project. It could be an encyclopedia entry from the far future. You know, the, um, it could be multimedia. Um, I, I really think there's a lot of, uh, apocalypses are fun, I guess. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure about that. So anyway, I'm really excited. Like I said, this is going to be some of my very favorite books. Um, I don't want to, you know, maybe Station Eleven, maybe The Girl with All the Gifts. So uh, I hope that we will have lots of people signing up so that we can have lots of fun talking about the end of the world and what happens next or or doesn't, as the case may be. I am in love with this class. <laughs> I'm going to take it. So. <laughs> Please sign you, up for it. You can still build your own apocalypse. We can still do that. We can have, you know, a special, special apocalyptic <laughs> event. Apocalypse. That's right. That's right. Well, we did not choose an apocalyptic book for our um, for our book this week, for our reading choice this week. I picked um, I picked a Victorian novel with dragons um, called Tooth and Claw by Joe Walton, yeah. um, which could not be any more up my alley. I guess, unless maybe the dragons were talking all the time about all the books they checked out from the library and how they had to <laughs> read them quickly before they had to go back. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the plot of the book. And then I have to ask, because this is my suggestion. So I get to ask Amy what she thought and if she's still my friend. Um, so like I said, this is Tooth and Claw by Joe Walton. It is a fantasy novel. The characters are dragons. Uh, but it is also a Victorian novel, and it's based on, um, as she acknowledges, it's based heavily on Framley Parsonage, which is a book by Anthony Trollope. It's one of his uh, Barsetshire uh, series books, which I have read those books, and I love them because I love me a good Victorian novel. Um, so the basic plot, you're following a family. Um, the patriarch of the family dies, leaving five children Two of the children are already established in like careers or marriages. Um, so we're, we're more following the three youngest children, which uh, two sisters, one brother, to see what would become of them now that the patriarch has died. And uh, for example, uh, one of the daughters, uh, Solyndra, falls in love with a young noble dragon, um, which greatly upsets the noble dragon's mother, um, which in that plot line is just lifted directly from family parsonage, um, which is, which is fine with me. Cause I love that plot line. And I, I think the, the, the mother is actually a great character, uh, but it's, it's Victorian in both in plot and then also in kind of the social, uh, mores of the time, the social rules and the author in the forward to the book talked about how she was interested in creating a, a world of dragons where there are physical reasons for all of the different Victorian rules. For example, um, nobility, you know, nobility are more important than the non-nobility. So in the book, the, nobi the noble dragons are physically bigger and larger than the other dragons, in part because they literally eat the children of the lower classes, um, which maybe says something about child mortality. <laughs> um, the female dragons are, if they are alone with a male dragon, they change color. So they are literally compromised. They, they are literally physically changed by being with um, a male dragon in too close contact, unsupervised. So 
so that that was really interesting. So now, so now I get to ask ask Amy what 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 did you think? Well, I thought it was such a fun book. So we're still friends. Yay! <laughs> but I what I, what I especially loved about it. I mean, so. I'm a sucker for Victorian literature. I think it occupies a really interesting space. It's got this weird juxtaposition of morality and corruption, social mm-hmm. mobility and class hierarchy, justice and prejudice. It's just a really interesting time. And, and I, I really like that Walton embraces it for what it is. I, I like that. Um, I, I think a lot of modern books set in Victorian times want the Victorian age to be something different from what it was. Right. And, and that can be interesting, too, just in a different way. But I, I love that Walton's story, even though it's a completely made-up Victorian world, is so faithful to the ideas and conventions of that world. And I love that the minute you start reading it, you're plunged into a world where you've got to work out everybody's titles and the social structure and what is appropriate and inappropriate behavior, which for me, it was a lot like the first time I read a Victorian novel where you're sitting there like, oh, wait, is so is an earl better than a baron? Oh, my gosh. I had the same I had the same thing in my notes. It, it reminded me of that first time you, you read, you know, Trollope or, or Austin or any other because you, you write you don't you don't know how the, the ranks are addressed. You, you are trying to figure out, okay, the Duke is the best. I got that. And so since she made up her own versions of that, you had to figure it out all over again. And I mean, it did, it did send me back to that feeling. I've, I've often said Jane Austen would be so much e- easier for me to read if someone had sat down at the very beginning and said, okay, this is how you address <laughs> sisters where they are in the room. The oldest sister is Miss Smith. The younger sister is Miss Elizabeth, but then if they go, but if the younger is just, anyway. Um, yeah. And it made me think of uh, a really great book that I read. Uh, have you ever read to marry an English Lord? Yes. 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 That is the book. It's by, it's called to marry an English Lord by Gail McCall and Carol Wallace. And it's specifically talking about Americans um, going over to England and, and collecting nobility. But um but what I loved about it was that was the first place I saw the list. I actually had a list. Okay, it was Duke, Marquis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could I could go through the list of what the ranks were ordered in and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I really enjoyed that part of this is what it's like to read it when you don't have any idea what's going on. So I think Walton may be even better than someone like Jane Austen who assumes that the reader gets it all. Right. I think Walton did a really good job of kind of helping you understand without making the list, without spelling it out. I mean, eventually you kind of had a sense of the hierarchy that you could in your head. Well, and I think it also emphasizes how kind of inherently ridiculous the ranks are. Yeah. I mean, if you grow up, you know, I grew up and I, I may have not known how things were ranked, but you, know, you grow up, you hear about dukes and you hear about earls and you hear sir and lord and all that kind of stuff. So it, there's a certain even though I'm not British, even though I did not certainly did not know the ins and outs of how that worked. Um, there's a certain familiarity, but when she's calling things by her names and I, I didn't write down like esteemed or, or I can't remember. Illustrious. Illustrious. You know, it, it's like, well, it seems a little silly. It seems a little silly and very artificial. And I, I think that's something that, that, that she highlights by, by making up her own versions. Well, and another example of just the ridiculousness of the societal convention. One of my favorite parts of, of the book, there's a, there's a, a, 
a big piece of the plot that centers around a court case that mm-hmm. the younger son is bringing against his sister's very wealthy husband. And the way that the court case works is that while they're in the courtroom, your attorneys have to address the judge, ask questions or uh, make an argument and they have to wear a different wig depending on what part of that they do (laughs) so if you have a whole team of lawyers you have one lawyer wearing his question wig who only asks questions (laughs) but if like the son in in, in the novel you you have one attorney he has to change his wigs periodically (laughs) during the proceedings so that they match what he's doing Yes, yes, that was fun. I really thought that was that was particularly <laughs> great. Well, I, I I really enjoyed I felt I felt like this was very much a loving tribute to Victorian literature. I mean, it's clear that she adores this stuff. And I started writing down quotes of where um for example, I'll just I'll just give you one in here. Uh this is from early on. Uh, the inhabitants of the dining room knew it was not elegance that makes a pleasant gathering, but the temperament of those gathered together. By selection of like to like, all the unpleasant members of the party had gathered in the speaking room and all the pleasant in the dining room. Um, that could be lifted from any trollop, any ost. I mean, that, 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 that line could be lifted just straight out of a Victorian novel. Um, so I really enjoyed the fact that this was a loving tribute, but I think it also recognizes that I mean, it's just one step away from like a Swiftian satire, right? Right. I mean, they're they're actually eating the children of the lower classes and well, their even, own children, even their own children, which yeah. I thought was really interesting. Right. And so it's 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 like it's I don't feel like it was satire, right? I don't feel like it was a, a Swiftian, um, a, a modest proposal type of takedown. I think it just kind of highlights that life could be really brutal and you're really only one step away (laughs) from, from that kind of satire. Yeah. I I thought that it was a delight. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I had read family parsonage and I went back and reread it after I finished this. Oh, you did. Because it had been some years. Well, since I had an extra week, you had an extra week. That's right. So uh, if I hadn't had the extra week, I wouldn't have been able to. So I was, I was so, and there is, um, that great quote about dragons in Family Parsonage, mm-hmm. where he says, um, "What uh, she'd like me to bring a dragon home, I suppose. It would serve her right if I did. Some creature that would make the house intolerable to her." <laughs> yeah. So you just you could just see when the light bulb went off. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I am so glad you liked it. I I loved it too. I mean, like I said, it would have been weird if I hadn't because this is right down my alley. Although I had not read. Joe Walton before she's um, she's an accomplished uh, science fiction fantasy writer and I I'm looking forward to reading more um, so yeah I loved it but I don't know that I would recommend it you know there's some books that you love so much and you could just walk around with a copy and just hand it over to the first person you see you know do you like to read you will love this book yes um, this is my book I, <laughs> I <have> so much <laughs> but I think then there's other books that you know like that I love but I would I would recommend them with caveats I mean I think one of the one of the things about this is you do have to be comfortable with kind of the whiplash and tone right we'll have a chapter where okay the the noble dragon is out doing his tour of his his properties and eating the children of the lower classes. And then the next chapter is called The Importance of Hats. Yeah. So 
So I, I can see for some people like that would just not, that would just not work. Right. I can, I can actually imagine that for some people that would be a really tough sell. Um, but for me, yeah, yeah, I loved it. No, I found it utterly charming. And I think that anyone who has a fondness for Victorian literature would, would, would love it just for that comparison, just for how, how lovingly it treats the conventions of the Victorian novel. Right. Right. And, and like I said before, the good thing is it is not as long as many Victorian novels. It's, <laughs> no, it's like, actually a, a surprisingly e- easy, I, maybe that's not the best word, but it's a surprisingly easy read. Mm-hmm. It, it, unlike um, our book for next time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which, I, um, which is Gore Vidal's Burr about Aaron Burr, who famously dueled Suzanne's hero, Alexander Hamilton. That's right. Um, Spoiler, which, he won. Which is more of, it's a, it's, a, it's a slower read for me. It's, it's a book that I, that I find myself, um, I enjoy reading it, but I want to take breaks from it. Whereas Tune right. Qua, I would, I would be like, oh, one more chapter. Right, right. Well, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward, this will, this will be our topic for our next podcast. Um, I guess August 1st is when our, our next one will drop. That's crazy. Where did the summer go? I know. So um, I actually read it while I was on vacation in the cabin that had no water. Um, and I try not to let that color my, my, uh, so I have, <laughs> and you're the person who's read, I, this is my first Gore Vidal. So I have, I have lots of questions. You'll have to be my Gore Vidal expert since it's you've read it. It's really fun to talk about. I am yeah. almost finished with it. And I don't know that I would say that I like it, but I find it interesting. Right. It's, it, I, um, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to get too much into it cause we don't want to spoil next week, but right. yeah, I think it's definitely. And I'm not finished. It could turn around. I could love it by the end. You could, you could, or maybe you could hate it. That is also an interesting outcome. That's true. I can talk a lot longer about books I hate than about books. I love. It is easier because, <laughs> well, yes, it's much easier. <laughs> so that that's very exciting. So Burr, yes, coming to a coming to a podcast near you. Yes, um, and I guess that takes us to the end of this podcast. The um, our healthy podcast, not our sick podcast. That's right. That's right. Our healthy podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening to the podcast with Suzanne and Amy brought to you by Homeschool Life magazine. Join us next time, August 1st, to talk about gearing up for a new homeschool year. Gorgeous. No! Her, I know. <laughs> and other conversations about the places where homeschool and life intersect. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.